I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is Mega Bluster, a guileless gamer podcast. I'm Stefan, and this is part 12 of our very, very long look at the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Wairi Andulraitu no Rokobodo Zatsu Heredaisu, which we can translate as Wiley and Wright's Rockboard. That's paradise. Released for the Nintendo Family Computer in January 1993. There are a lot of reasons why Pac-Man is such an important release in the history of video games, but one that we tend to take for granted is that it was the first game that really lent itself to the sort of character-driven franchising that we've come to expect in the ensuing four decades. As a character-based, non-shooting game, Pac-Man spawned a merchandising empire, including t-shirts, bumper stickers, and a Saturday morning cartoon series. According to Popular Computing, Pac-Man generated more than $1 billion in merchandising revenue in its first two years, and those are early 1980s dollars. The suits at Namco HQ weren't going to leave coins in consumers' pockets either and quickly went about repurposing the character for a series of sequels, spin-offs, and new adventures. Super Pac-Man, Pac-N-Pal, Junior Pac-Man, Pac-Land, and yes, Ms. Pac-Man, cemented the character in popular culture, all the while challenging both game players and game makers to consider what made a game worth playing over and over and over again. Now, most relevant to our current topic is a spin-off produced not by Namco, but by its American partner Bally Midway, who had released both the original Pac-Man and its pseudo-sequel Ms. Pac-Man in the United States. Professor Pac-Man was a quiz game released in arcades in August 1983. Abandoning the traditional maze chase format, Professor Pac-Man challenged players to answer multiple-choice questions before a timer could expire. The questions had nothing to do with Pac-Man, or even other video games, and Pac-Man himself merely played the role of Quizmaster. While the game was about as far as it could get from Pac-Man as a video game, it represents perhaps the purest distillation of Pac-Man as an intellectual property. Pac-Man wasn't a character, he was an icon malleable, corruptible, and able to be placed in a variety of contexts, including a very bad video game. In making Professor Pac-Man, Bally Midway demonstrated its belief that the Pac-Man name was powerful enough to sell anything. Within its first year, Pac-Man had sold 100,000 machines. In its lifetime, Professor Pac-Man sold 400. Many dangerous things can happen when a video game company confuses the appeal of its games with the appeal of its brand. Which brings us to today's subject, Wiley and Wright's Rockboard, That's Paradise. In a year that saw the releases of Star Fox, Kirby's Adventure, The Seventh Guest, Day of the Tentacle, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, Disney's Aladdin, Myst, Virtual Fighter, NBA Jam, Mortal Kombat 2, Daytona USA, and Doom. 
Capcom led off with a Japan-exclusive riff on Monopoly, starring the least popular characters from Mega Man, released on 10-year-old hardware. It didn't work. Now when I say that this game, which I will for brevity's sake call Rockboard, didn't work, I mean it. I mean, you should have realized that it didn't work the moment I mentioned that it was a riff on Monopoly. For those of you who don't know what Monopoly is, what rock have you been sleeping on? And is there room for another sleeper? Monopoly is a nearly 90-year-old board game that began life as a lesson in a theory of economics called Georgism, functionally a variant of socialism. Georgism is named for economist Henry George, and was a theory that argued that economic rent that is derived from the use of land should be shared socially rather than concentrated in the hands of individual landowners. That description is as reductive as it is uninteresting, but what's important is that George's theories were influential in the early 20th century, and inspired significant conversation across the economic ideological spectrum. Now that's exactly what you need when you're trying to craft a board game to appeal to Depression-era Americans yearning for some distraction from their bleak existences. Monopoly represents one of the most effectively marketed game properties of all time, with countless reissues, special editions, branded editions, promotional tie-ins, remember McDonald's, and even video games working overtime to convince families that it was, in fact, a fun game. Monopoly is not a fun game, and neither is Rockboard. Rockboard asks players to select an avatar from a list of five characters. There are the eponymous scientific rivals Dr. Light, right in Japan, and Dr. Wily. There's Light's cleaning robot slash Mega Man's sister, Roll. And then there are Dr. Cossack and his daughter Kalinka, both of whom were relevant in Rockman 4 for the family computer, and then basically never again. Mega Man himself appears only as an MC on the setup screen, indicating that even though Capcom wanted to sell the game on the basis of his name, they did not want to sully him personally by associating him with it too closely. Now this is not an interesting game to play but it is an interesting game to consider. It has a few tweaks to the formula, but let's not mince words, this is Mega Man Monopoly. It's a digital version of a physical game dressed up at the margins with a modern video game brand. And the question that raises is, why bother? Well, in 1989, Taito released Bakusho Jensei Gekijo for the Famicom. Bakusho Jensei Gekijo is, for all intents and purposes, a reinterpretation of the Game of Life, another Milton Bradley board game with roots tracing back to before Abraham Lincoln was elected president. Between 1989 and 1993, Taito released five entries in the Jensei Gekijo series, two of which were for the Super Famicom. Games in the Jensei series were being released as late as 2011 on, you guessed it, the Nintendo Wii, and one has to believe that Taito would not have released at least one a year for more than 20 years if the sales weren't at least decent. 
By the time of Rockboard's release, Jensei would have been a proven winner. And in the waning days of the Famicom's Japanese life cycle, trying to grab a little bit of that sweet, sweet board game video game money must have been mighty tempting for Capcom. Clearly the target was appealing enough for Capcom to assign, well, not its C team to the project. Yoshinora Takanaka took the reins as planner, and Akemi Iwasaki provided design services. And both of them would go on to have long careers at Capcom. Despite their efforts, however, the attempt clearly failed. Although when the consolation prize for failure is we continued making Mega Man games while Taito continued reinterpreting the game of life, perhaps we can see that sometimes failure has its virtues. But the Jensei series isn't where we begin either. Let's go back further. How many versions of chess, checkers, backgammon, and go have been developed by how many different companies for how many different consoles? How many developers have suckled at the teat of board game nostalgia as a mechanism of drawing in audiences somewhat familiar with brands that predate the births of their grandparents, but wary of something that you plug into your TV and that they'd seen on the 5 o'clock news would rot their kids' brains? The idea of bringing a board game into the video game medium is entirely natural. Much like adapting a novel into a film, or if you're Alan Dean Foster, a film into a novel. And the idea of smacking a contemporaneously popular video game mascot onto that digitized board game is logical. Natural, even. In 1998, Nintendo and Hudson Soft released Mario Party for the Nintendo 64, a wildly successful video game that repurposed the characters and aesthetics of the Super Mario series for a party game modeled on a board game. You roll dice, you complete mini-games, you make your way around a board, you see defeat snatched from the jaws of victory at the whim of a random number generator. It's a board game! And like the Jensei series, there have been a lot of them and they continue to be successful. Super Mario Party is a favorite game of my 10 and 12 year old nieces. It has made them love Mario. And so when it comes to the why, I'll go so far as to say, Rockboard was a good idea. The concept of Rockboard could work as a franchise builder, as a brand extender. But for it to work, they'd have needed to pick a much, much better game than Monopoly to model it on. Thanks for listening to part 12 of Mega Bluster, our very, very long look at the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original postings in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't, send it to people you don't like to make them mad. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep fighting? How long will my pain last? 
Maybe only the Axe Buster on my hand knows for sure. <laughs>